Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, my name is Doug, and it is good to be with you here in the room, folks online. And uh, oh, did we not dismiss the kids? For, uh, I mean, you can stay, but I think there's class. So I think Kid Life and Peanut Gallery are hanging out today. So you guys are free and released to go do your thing or stay. You know, it's up to you guys. Man, it's remarkable how um, when you are meditating and thinking about something in particular that the Lord puts on your heart, that as you kind of consciously or unconsciously open up yourself to what the Lord is doing around you, it's pretty remarkable how things pop up and conversations happen that reinforce and somehow uh, bring new meaning and emphasis to whatever it is that God is uh, kind of putting on you in that particular time. And today, uh, we're in this Lenten series, uh, wrapping up, getting ready to wrap up our series entitled Dust to Dust, and we're sort of capturing uh, the essence or the intention of Lent, which is to get in touch with our humanity, to get in touch with our frailty as human beings, our need for God, our sense of our limitation within ourselves, uh, so much so having to do with uh, our physical bodies, our living and our dying, and how that happens in every season of life. And out of that uh, conversation about grief and that reflection that we're going to have today about the resurrection body, we're hearing now testimonies of of what God is doing in the midst of grief journeys that many of us are on. In the conversation with Mitchell about his former boss and just the weight of grief and the weight of loss and the nature of dying uh, and how that somehow makes uh, living somehow more important, more significant, more precious, more urgent, and how the things of life seem to bubble to the surface in the midst of that. So I just want to acknowledge that. That kind of has nothing to do with anything other than that's just kind of what's in my heart. And even Josh, is, he reflected in his relative youth about the end of his days and what he gets to look forward to and the confidence that he holds uh, because of Jesus. Uh, was so powerful. So thank you for sharing that, Josh. It was awesome. So here we are, dust to dust. I want to begin with this myth. I don't even know if it's a myth, but I, I think it's out there in the ether that our bodies are just a shell for our souls or our spirits that we will no longer need once we die and go to heaven. Good riddance to this broken down tin can of a body, right? We're trading her in and we're getting something better. Um, so this is a fascinating subject that we actually, our bodies, these bodies continue. 
and that this is really unique to the Christian gospel. There's this, this weird thing that we hold in our faith tradition and history that says that the bodies we have now go on. Not exactly the way that they are now, praise the Lord, but they go on. And there's something kind of weird and trippy about that that we're going to kind of talk about and try to unpack today. And, and part of how we're going to get after this is to look at um, a little bit of this tradition. If this is new to you, uh, and this is like the first time you're hearing it in this way, this is an ancient, ancient belief. It goes back to uh, the beginning of the beginning. The Apostles' Creed has been floating around in Christianity since you know, the 4th century, 5th century. And it's been one of those kind of core statements of faith, those belief doctrines that they adopted in those days to really identify who are we and this is the core of what we believe. This is the core of what makes a Christian a Christian and everything else is cool, but this is it. This is what they distilled it down to. Got it on the screen This is on our website. This is part of the Covenant Church. This is part of Christianity kind of everywhere. And it says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, God bless you, was crucified, dead and buried. The third day he rose again, God bless you again, And from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And I want us to just kind of circle in on that phrase. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Our bodies, your body, my body. I believe in the resurrection of the body. We shouldn't be surprised by this, but there's some beautiful teaching around what this means as we try to get in touch with our humanity, as we get in touch with our, our human frailty our impermanence in the face of eternity. There's some neat stuff for us there, but let's pray together. Just continue to hand this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, God, God, we are are somehow acutely aware this morning that our bodies in their present state don't seem to last forever that there is somehow an expiration date on the bodies that we are born with and into. And God, we're somehow searching for deeper meaning, deeper understanding as we hold that truth together with the hope and the possibility of eternity. And so, God, would you meet us in that place of meaning? Would you meet us in that place of searching? Would you meet us in that place of awareness 
so that we can have a clearer picture of you, who it is that you've called us to be, as you call us to be like you. Thanks, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so no better place for us to hang out and dance around a little bit than 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm just going to read the first section here, which is really uh, just kind of a history, and, and to kind of break down a little bit about what it is that we believe about the resurrection of the body. And uh, it opens up a giant can of worms for us to think uh, eschatologically. And if you know what eschatological means, then you are probably the one that has lots of questions that come out of this. For those of you who don't know or don't care, then we'll just stay in that ignorant place because that's a whole other sermon series that we're not going to have time to break into. But we're going to talk about the resurrection body itself, what it is, what happens to it, what maybe the good news is inside of that uh, without ruining Easter in a couple of weeks and, and what that might mean for us now. Okay, so first things first. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. Listen to this. Paul is saying, For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, as Paul was writing this, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So Paul is giving us this simple account, kind of a historical record, and he's saying this is of first importance. You've got to get this. There is a bodily resurrection of Jesus. And this is a historical record, by the way. This is something that nobody debates, right? There's not really a huge debate historically because all of these people, eyewitnesses, had a collective communal hallucination about Jesus and all reported it and talked about it and wrote about it and shared this news. Hundreds of people all bore witness to Jesus' bodily resurrection, right? So a couple things out of this. So we have to know, Jesus actually died. This wasn't some David Copperfield, right? David Blaine, is that that dude's name? The levitating guy. This is not smoke and mirrors. You know, I took something, slowed my heart rate out of the movies, right? It appeared that I was dead, but he was dead, right? For days and days. And there were rituals around this and all the different ways that they tested this to confirm that he was dead and they moved him and they buried him and they they consecrated the whole thing. And then on the third day, he rises to an empty tomb. Again, don't want to give away Easter, but that's the story. Right? (laughs) Spoiler alert. Right? Jesus was not a ghost. I love this picture. Just imagine, the disciples are in the upper room, right? Some of you are familiar with this. So after Jesus dies, 
a bunch of his uh, kind of closest followers, the 12 and uh, maybe some others, all decide to hide because they fear persecution. They're thinking if they can kill Jesus, they definitely want to kill his followers too because that was kind of the, the, the tone of the time, right? There was sort of this raging energy, anger campaign against Jesus and they wanted to squash this movement. And so, of course, Jesus' closest you know, companions and followers were all kind of concerned. If they can kill Jesus, you know, you and I are probably next. So they hid in an upper room, right, not remembering anything of, of what Jesus was trying to instruct them to do. And they also were just going to hide and wait and see what happens. And so goes the story. Jesus appears in the room, right, and freaks everybody out. Everybody just panics, right? Because nobody heard the door open. It was probably locked, right? They moved all the furniture against the door, and Jesus somehow materializes inside of the room, and they're all thinking it must be a ghost. And Jesus, in typical kind of Jesus fashion, says, do not be afraid, right? After everybody just wets themselves. And they're all like, it's too late, Jesus. It's too late. And Jesus appears. And the question in that moment is, is Jesus bodily in this moment? Is Jesus a ghost? Is he somehow an aberration that he can float through walls and move through space? And I think sometimes that's the picture we have of Jesus in that particular way. But I want to I offer to you this thought that what if Jesus was not less substantial in his glorified self, but what if he was more substantial? What if he wasn't just a disembodied spirit, some kind of first century hologram? But what if Jesus became more? More than just a physical body. He became a glorified body. And what is a glorified body? but a human body made super spiritual? I mean, we are essentially physical spiritual beings, right? We get that part. We are physical spiritual beings. We have the image of God imprinted upon us in physical mortal bodies, right? So we've got both going on. We've got the body and we've got the spirit. And Jesus, in his glorified self, became, I would argue, super spiritual. Still bodily, still physical, not immaterial, but super spiritual. Supernatural, in a way. That allowed him to move through space and time, just as we do, but in a glorious kind of way, right? It's an interesting thing to noodle on a little bit. I mean, we don't know exactly, but we get this impression, right? And I just want to offer you that Jesus was not less than human. He was so much more than the body he occupied. And that substantial nature, that glorious nature, is what allowed him to enter a room that was closed. Though he was still in that glorified body.
Are you with me? Right? It gets a little uh, sort of scientific here, or, uh, you know, um, what's the word? Not scientific. Metaphysical, no, like, uh, like the movies. I don't know. Okay, okay, anyway. <laughs> Sci-fi, science fiction, thank you. Jeez, Louise. I put my coffee down somewhere, and I'm, I'm, like, I'm like half empty right now, so we don't know what's going to happen. Okay. So I don't want to give Easter away, but that's part of the story. But listen to this. Why is this important? This is crucial for us, okay? Again, not to give away Easter, but I just want to touch on this because it's super important. Picking up in verse 12. Listen to what it says. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. Listen to this. This is, this is so crucial why this doctrine is in the Apostles' Creed and why it's central. But if it is preached that Christ has not has been raised from the dead, if it has been preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Ouch. More than that, We are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him. In fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied. Right? If the resurrection doesn't happen, and if we don't understand or believe or hold on to the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, then Jesus wasn't resurrected. You and I aren't getting resurrected. And guess what? This whole gospel falls apart. The whole thing is meaningless. Our preaching is meaningless. I'm out of a job, and we all just go home. Are you with me? So it's crucial that we hold on to this. It's critical that we understand the resurrection of the dead. It's critical that we understand why we celebrate Easter, why it is so important for everyone to come and hear about the resurrection of Jesus. It holds everything together, friends. So we recognize that our physical death will be followed by some kind of bodily resurrection where, like Jesus, we will become more substantial, more significant, and glorious. Right? There is a bodily resurrection for us through Jesus because of this core doctrine that we hold on to. So let's get into a little bit about how our future resurrection will look like the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So all of us will continue 
in some way. But our resurrection bodies, here's the good news, will be like and unlike our present bodies. Can I get an amen? Right? They will be like and unlike our present bodies. How so? Four ways get shared in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49, right? Check this out. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, that's the one you get, is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam, speaking of Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spirit did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. First man was of the dust of the earth. That's where we get that language. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born the image of the earthly man, we shall, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Right? Again, this picture of who it is that we are and who we will be. Right? But I just want to unpack these ideas. The perishable turns into the imperishable. Dishonor turns into glory. Weakness raised in power. I'm going to say the naturally animated body and the spiritually animated body. Right? Born or sown in a natural body, raised a spiritual body. We don't have to spend a ton of time here. I think these feel somewhat obvious to us, but I just want us to hang out here a little bit so we can appreciate the human experience. We are so imperishable, right? It's interesting to think about our bodies in that way. Perishable. It means we have a use-by date, right? There is an expiration date on the container, right? Wouldn't it be nice if we knew when the expiration date would be, right? And we could plan accordingly. It's like a scene out of Gattaca. If you don't know that movie, you should watch it. The idea is that things stop working. Things slowly start to decay, for lack of a better word, right? Anybody here know when it's going to rain before they looked out a window, right? You get out of bed in the morning and your knee hurts in a particular way and you think, oh, it's going to rain today because you have an expiration date and you start to become aware how the things start to break down. Simple tasks become difficult. An aching of the hands, a stiffness in the body, our vision, our hearing, our sense of touch and taste and smell. The way that we experience the world around us slowly starts to close off on us, right? And this is how we measure the dying process. This is how we estimate how much longer we have until our expiration date is met. 
how we can get around our house. Can we get up from a seated position on our own? How much assistance do we need in that process? Can we get off the ground without assistance? Can we go to the restroom by ourselves? Can we bathe by ourselves? Can we feed ourselves? Can we chew and swallow the food that is given to us, even if we can't feed ourselves? These are all predictors of how long we live in the land. And as we measure those things, the perishable process of our humanity that happens to us at every stage, it's not just for the old, it's not just for the aged or the elderly, it happens to us all at different times and different seasons. Sometimes it happens slowly, Sometimes it happens quickly, the perishable life. And when we are encountered with the perishing process, there's something about our living that gets awakened, isn't it? That's what Mitchell was talking about. The things of life become apparent to us when we see the perishing process but we are raised imperishable. That means we get a body, a renewed, refurbished, glorified body that doesn't age or decay or break down. That's good news for us, friends. And we've got to picture that. And we've got to hold the bodies that we have in whatever state that they're in with an understanding that we will be raised imperishable and that the imperishable body doesn't age and doesn't have an expiration date and it doesn't change. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. And the picture here that that we are given is one of, of, in my mind, sort of the aging process, which is kind of the same as the dying process, sadly, the aging process. And I was going to share some pictures of this because this is what I've been uh, kind of has been on my mind. I was going to show you pictures of my dad, but I didn't really have the energy to do that. And I remember looking at the photos and going back into his pictures this week. And I remember looking at him and thinking, I never knew him as a young man because I wasn't born. All I had were pictures. And thankfully, he was a bit of a photo bug. He Shutterbug. He loved taking pictures, and often of himself when he was a young man. It's fascinating how he did this, right? Pre-selfie, right? Imagine the selfie stick with like a twenty-pound camera. It'd be incredible. He took photos of himself, and I remember looking at him and thinking, "I never knew him as a young man." And I thought, "Wow, look at that guy." As a boy, and as a teenager, and as a man in his twenties with his whole life ahead of him. And I looked at his photos, and I saw him when he was my age, and I thought, wow, okay. I think I look better than than he did at that particular (laughs) time. Okay, ahead of the curve, kids. Doing okay. And then I saw the photos at the end of his life. And I thought, this is the dishonor of dying. It is the dishonor of dying the inability to care for yourself, the inability to do the things that 
you wish to do for yourself, but that you can't. This is, this is the brutality of dust to dust, right? And this is the picture of the kind of the indignity of dying. And I think to myself, we will be raised in glory. And we'll never have to face the indignity of dying again. That's a powerful thought, friends. And I'm still working out the implications of what that means and and how that sort of engages with where we are now, but there is something about that that gives me hope and gives me strength and gives me courage as I sit with people who are in that end-of-life stage and to sit with them and pray with them and recognize that for those who have faith that a day is coming when you will be raised in glory. And you may look more like that young man in the photo, full of life, full of vitality, full of hopefulness. And look more like that in your glorious self than in the final moments uh, that we shared. A powerful picture of what it means to be raised in glory. Sown in weakness, something that I think we feel all the time, don't we? This sense of inability, the lack of capacity, the helplessness in the face of all of the different problems that we encounter, whether those things are happening within our lives and the lives of other people, whether it's a natural disaster, flooding, hurricanes, tornadoes, Earthquakes, famine, all of our creativity, all of our intellect, all of our resources, all of our cleverness, and we cannot solve the fundamental problems of humanity. We haven't solved the fundamental problems of humanity, our weakness, our frailty, man's injustice to man, our growing awareness of knowledge and of the future and of the past and of outer space, none of this has helped heal the fundamental weakness of our humanity. We feel that, don't we? We feel that sense of helplessness and that powerlessness. And yet someday, a day is coming, friends, when we raised are raised in power ultimate power to do it all or to do nothing which is its own kind of power do you see it a day is coming friends when that frustration that we feel that weakness and that powerlessness that inability that we feel becomes removed and all that tension that it brings with us gets resolved there was this beautiful quote that a friend of mine captured. This was years ago. And she had this picture in this book. And I can't even remember the book. It was, it was a long time ago. And she was reading the book. And she came to me in tears and said, I saw this picture in this book. And it was amazing. And in the book it says, when you get to heaven, 
Uh, everybody gets in line. I don't know if there are lines in heaven, but everybody is lining up. And, and I'm not sure exactly how this works, but you get in line, and everybody gets in line based on their relative righteousness, right? That sounds like a test to me. It's a little stressful. But everybody gets in line according to their spot. And, you know, you've got the Apostle Paul, and, you know, you've got all these different people in history. Everybody in history is in the line, and they're in their spot. And maybe everybody's got a number. I'm not sure how everybody knows their spot in line, but everybody gets their spot in line. And here's the thing that really captured me. was uh, uh, She said two things. One, that everybody who thought that you thought was going to be at the front of the line wasn't at the front of the line. That there are all these like unknown, invisible people. Somebody's grandma is at the front of the line for like the godliest person who ever walked the face of the earth. Like the Apostle Paul was like second, right? <laughs> Somehow, and you're like, wow, who's that? That's somebody's grandma. She's amazing, yeah. But the thing was, when you got in the line, everybody had this tremendous awareness. Nobody was grumbling about their spot in line. Nobody was upset that they weren't first or second or that they didn't have a lower number. Everybody who got their number got their number and they were completely aware of why they got the number that they got. And everybody was completely aware of why everybody else got their number. And everybody was content because we removed all of the tension and the forces and the the games and the races that we're trapped in in our humanity. And there was this, everybody knew everything about all things and everybody was happy with their spot. Are you with me? There is a power that is coming, friends, that resolves all of the conflict that we have within ourselves and that we have toward others. Power is coming out of our weakness. And I think God wants to give us pictures of this in our life, that out of our weakness, he demonstrates his power, right? I think that's kind of why the gospel operates that way, because it wants to give us this picture of how the kingdom is designed to operate, that out of weakness, God's power is made real. I think that's in the Bible somewhere, right? But that's a whole other sermon. But I want you to kind of live in this space. That if you are feeling weak today, it's okay. Right? Power is coming. The kingdom is coming. And in fact, in many ways, the kingdom is arriving here in and through that weakness, in and through that dishonor, in and through that perishable nature that you were sown in. The kingdom is happening Naturally animated versus spiritually animated. Uh, I'm not sure how we describe this, but here's the best way that I I thought of that made sense to me and helped me go to sleep. Um, So we have this phrase, like the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Have you heard that? Right? Have you ever had this idea like, oh, I want to so badly, but something inside of me is like, no, I'm out. Right? I really want to get up and go work out. I really want to not eat that piece of cake. I really want to, you know, and then you're like, ah, but, you know, I did the things. I stay in bed. I eat the cake. What if your imperishable, glorious, powerful body was more spirit-driven than bodily-driven? What if your spirit was strong in such a way that when you say the spirit is willing, it actually happens. 
when you say in your spirit, this is what I dream, this is what I wish for, this is what I want, this is what I'm motivated by, then you are a spiritually animated being that can override your natural self, your physical self and its limitations and its appetites and its stuff. And you became a supernatural being. Are you with me? Not driven by your nature, but driven by your spirit that is from God. You become a supernatural being in that way. We're not Gnostics. It's another fancy word, which basically means we think that the physical world is bad and the spiritual is good and we're just trying to escape and get rid of all of our physical nature. That's not at all who we are. God, when he created all things, said that it was good and he said that it was good again and then he said it was very good. And if something is very good to God, it's pretty awesome, right? So that's where we live, friends. We live in that belief and that understanding. We are good. The bodies that we have will go on. There is a bodily nature to our resurrected bodies that we have to embrace and that we can enjoy, right? So what do we do with all this? Awareness, right? What do we do with this stuff? One, thank God for the resurrection of Jesus. Because if we don't get that, we're hosed, right? Simple, simple, right? The second thing is we have to live by faith now in the bodies that we have to bring God glory. Live by faith now, which means we have to exercise the muscle of the spirit inside of us to motivate and animate the body the way that the resurrected body is going to live. Are you with me? This is part of how we want to live the kingdom now, is saying, what I really want to do is eat the cake. What my spirit is saying is saying, take care of your body. Right? That's a simple example. Right? Don't be diabetic by eating the cake. That's where I live, by the way. So we're living in this space and allowing the spirit to operate in the best way possible. Live with hope in the resurrection body. I don't know exactly how we do that, but I want us to live with an awareness that we get this body again, and that bodiliness is not the enemy. That bodiliness is not the enemy. That it is good. To treat it that way, right? And care for it and anticipate it, hope in it, dream about it. Recognize that the limitations that you feel today that are getting you down, that are breaking you down, that are harming your sense of yourself, that you recognize a day is coming, friends, when that is no longer going to be an issue. And I want that to give me strength this morning because it's hard to get out of bed. And I can't help but think about this story about uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you are familiar with her, right, and her legacy, right? I looked up these pictures of Johnny. I almost had them, but they were also almost too much to bear. 
If you have a chance, go Google Johnny Erickson Tata and look at pictures of her when she was a younger woman. There's a picture of her standing on a horse that's galloping because she loved horses. And she's zipping along and she's doing some acro yoga before acro yoga was a thing, right? And I'm like, wow, look at that. Look at that person. Who is that? That's Johnny Erickson Tata, who at the age of 17, because she loved to swim in the Chesapeake Bay near her home, dove into some water, not realizing it was shallow. And in an instant, at 17, turned into a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. And here's the story that she recounts in her own autobiography that she wrote with a stick in her mouth. She became a painter and an author and a motivational speaker and brought wheelchairs to paralyzed children in Africa and continues this tremendous legacy. And she says this, Easter saved her that year because as a quadriplegic, she would go to church in a wheelchair and she was Episcopalian and she was processing through this great tragedy that happened to her and she would be at church and came across this problem because the Episcopalian church, every Sunday, there would be this part of the service in which the priest would ask everyone to kneel. And that just drove home to her that she was in a wheelchair and when everyone would kneel and she couldn't do it, she would burst into tears. But Easter saved her that year because the priest asked everyone to kneel and she was about to burst into tears. And then for some reason she decided to pray the prayer that everyone was praying and it was about the resurrection and it suddenly hit her. And she says this in her autobiography, I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, that's the resurrection, the first thing I'll be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to get on my feet and I'm going to dance. Can you imagine the hope of the resurrection gives someone with a spinal cord injury like me? If you know that you're going to have a fully redeemed, fully satisfied, glorified body, bodily life for all of eternity, then that is real power and strength for today, no matter what you're facing. It's a picture for us. How does a future resurrection of the broken body, the expiring body that we have, give me strength and courage and power to live today? And Johnny is a beautiful picture of the very truth of that power, not just an inspiration, but the truth of that power, that God's power is made real in the midst of our weakness. And it gives us real hope and real strength, and real power for today, no matter what we're facing. Let's pray together.